cul-de-sac contemplating murder. Swerving with my circus, looking for a purpose. Pseudo clean record, hope got another surface. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 18 of Culper's Canteen Cup. Here at the Cup, man, we're all hoping you've been steering clear of those riots, the COVID, the pesky murder hornets. We appreciate each and every one of you taking time to listen to this podcast, whether you're in the U.S., Holland, Taiwan, Iceland, South Korea, and especially Colombia. SOS para ti, Jaime. Siempre serás mi hermano. Because of y'all, the sun never sets on Culper's Canteen Cup Empire, and we appreciate that. Thanks to Carlton Zeus for that intro music. Check him out on iTunes or at carltonzeus.com. This week, we'd like to tell you about a business we we recently learned about called Ginger Inferno Flags. That's right. Ginger, as in Gilligan's Island, or those folks who supposedly have no souls. But don't worry, Dan, the owner of Ginger Inferno Flags, has a soul, and he's a solid patriot. Let me tell you about his product. Ginger Inferno designs and creates handcrafted, customized wooden flags. Sounds easy, right? It isn't. Well, I mean... I should say, based on the quality of these flags, it doesn't look easy. These flags have a rustic, really powerful feel. Put a Betsy Ross on one of those bad boys with your favorite logo, as in a Ranger Flash or whatnot, and you'll be proud to hang that on the wall of your home or office. Is that not enough for you? Proud of all those coins that Sergeant Major Roger gave you back in the day? Ginger Inferno can also customize your flag with little small ledges you can place all that swag. Dan's even working on a design that will fold out and hold a stash of quality bourbon and all the accoutrements so you can enjoy it with your friends. He's calling it the Samuel Adams Speakeasy Deluxe. Again, he'll make almost any flag you want, even a Taiwanese flag. Shout out to our homie in the South China Sea. The flags range from $65 to $130, and I think he's grossly undercharging for these folks. He can ship just about anywhere in the world. And these things are for both sides of the aisle, man. You support the flag, you you know, hang that up in your in your room. You can be proud of the country. If you're an Antifa shithead, well, you can kneel in front of it. Either way, both sides of the aisle. Check out Ginger Inferno Flags on Facebook and Instagram. Give the pages a like and a follow and check out his products. They make perfect gifts or a little something to hang on the wall of your man cave or she shed. And with that, we're going to move into our topic for this episode. Uh, with all these murder hornets and riots and, you know, COVID, all this stuff has kind of been getting us down. And we, we noticed that we we're getting kind of crabby at work, crabby with each other. So we decided we'd go with a different kind of topic this time. Uh, we've got uh, Ryan and Kristen King on the show. And I, I had told uh, Roger and Josh all about Ryan and Kristen. And they said, you know what? We should get them on to tell that story because it's very unique, and it's it's a little bit of a feel-good story. Now, uh, Ryan is a longtime mentor of mine in a, in a number of different areas, and uh, he's a retired officer. He's got a lot of different uh, skills that a lot of people don't have. They went their entire career. Ryan went through some schools that uh, very admirable. He made it through all of them, and uh, he's always a great officer. I was really sad to see him go when he did retire. And, uh, you know, his wife, Kristen, I, I don't know her as well, but I can tell you one thing after knowing Ryan for all these years, for sure, is that Kristen probably has a vision problem of some sort. I can't. There's got to be something there. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about their experience. Uh, I, I believe it started in Europe. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan. But uh, it, it boils down to this. They adopted four boys. And I'm, I'm going to let them kind of get into that and uh, start off with Ryan there. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you too, Kristen, and tell us, just kind of give us a rundown of your story. 
Oh, hey, thank you very much, and I appreciate the, the, the kind words. I mean, I, Luke and I have known each other for a while. We uh, deployed to Afghanistan together and did, did a lot of uh, did a lot of interesting things, and, uh, and he's, I consider him a very close friend, and I appreciate you inviting us to, to come on here. I've been listening to the show, and I really enjoy it. And so um, thank you a lot. And I hope uh, – what I want to say, too, we're going to talk a little bit about our uh, experiences with international adoption, but I want to just let people know ahead of time, that our experiences are very dated. Our last adoption was 2011, 2000, and first adoption was 2008. So if anybody is looking for a how-to or whatnot, um, you probably want some more current info. And I have no problem with, with helping them out with this, but this is more of a our personal experience with adoption and how it worked out and the pros and cons and, and things like that. So with that disclaimer out of the way, we uh, Chris and I got married in 1998, and we had been married approximately – I'd say probably about seven or eight years before we started talking about uh, about children. I think my wife's giving me the signal she wants to jump in already. <laughs> well, you mentioned when that did, didn't take long. <laughs> you mentioned when did this start, and it actually started before we got married because I always knew that I wanted to adopt. So it was one of the things we talked about when we started getting serious and we were dating. You know, would this be something you'd be up for? And so we had that conversation before we even got married. So yeah, we were in, and we were in, we were in Belgium. Uh, it was in two thousand, around two thousand five, two thousand six. I'm supposing mm-hmm. we we had been we hadn't been actively trying to have kids. We also hadn't been actively not trying to have kids, but nothing was really happening. So we started going through some uh, fertility doctor issues, which in, in Belgium is experienced all its own. I can tell you on a different, oh, a different God. show. Can't imagine. But, um, you know, it turns out nothing was physically wrong with either one of us. It was just a matter of it just wasn't happening. And we started considering more invasive sorts of things. And we weren't really inclined to go that route just because if we'd had some friends who'd gone through that and almost tore their marriage apart. And it just, it just really became, we started talking about adoption and we decided that, yes, that that's what we want to pursue. And we looked we started looking into that, and uh, of course, I don't know uh, how much people know about adoption, but especially international adoption, everything is about your home study. Your home study, you bring somebody, a social worker comes in, they interview you, they interview your family, they inspect your home for safety. And not just a social uh, worker, like we had to have the fire department come and check for fire issues, and how many kids are you allowed to put in at that room based on square footage and stuff like that? So real quick question. So with the international adoption you guys were doing, the people that were coming in and inspecting, were was that Belgians? Was that U.S.? How did that work? The social worker was U.S. It had to be a U.S. person. So we just had to search and find a U.S. social worker who was living in Belgium at the time who had their certification. So, yeah. And then the second adoption was the one where we had to have the fire chief and that sort of thing. We were actually on base at that time. So it, everything was run through the post. So, you know, and part of an international adoption, and initially also we looked at trying to adopt from the U.S., but that at the time was extremely difficult. Um, it was just difficult. I, that's a, a variety of issues with that problem, but it was difficult in the U.S., almost impossible. So we started looking at trying to adopt, and initially we started looking at trying to adopt from Belgium. I mean, the church we were part of supported a Belgian orphanage, but the EU laws, you can't adopt an EU orphan unless you're an EU citizen. So it's just it's just not possible. And we found out like friends of friends who were adopting in Denmark, they were you know they're citizens, they're EU. They've been trying to adopt for eight years, and it's like it just 
Yeah. There's too many hoops to jump through. So, so back to I get back to the home study. The, the issue, it, it, once you move, of course, in the military, you're moving every three or four years. And we were fortunate enough to we could stay in Belgium for a while, but we knew we'd have to move. And if you move, your home study is invalidated. All that time, all that money just go out the window and you start over. So we needed some place we could adopt from rather quickly. Uh, which ruled out a lot of places. Uh, At that time, it was only Ethiopia, Guatemala, or Haiti, I think. And at at that time, Guatemala had... um, you know, concerns about how things were being done down there, and their, their, their program was shut down for a while. And we started going the route of Haiti, and that was shut down as well. Then we started looking at Lesotho, because that opened, that's a little tiny country in the middle of South Africa. And finally, Ethiopia opened up, which is where we adopted our first two, first two children from. Our second adoption, we went through... Um, we went through the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, and that was also kind of an issue. We, when we started adopting the second adoption, which is 2011, we started about also someplace we could adopt rather quickly, and Ethiopia at that point had been shut down for a variety of reasons, so we couldn't go back to Ethiopia. And so our next adoption in 2011 was also two boys. Initially, we were looking at girls that time because, you know, Kristen wanted girls, but we were already kind of down the path of, of Congo before we realized that Congo uh, culture, it's not as simplistic as I'm going to bring it out, but they almost have kind of a reverse dowry situation. So people have to pay families of daughters to get them to marry their family. So daughters are worth more than, than boys are. So mm. you, it's almost mostly adopting boys. So, I mean, it was a blessing, and it was great that we have four boys. But Kristen sometimes says she'd like to have some girls yeah, on occasion. Yeah, we— <laughs> I, that's what I thought. We had two older boys. It'd be great to have two younger girls. But you kind of have to walk through this process of what what are the most important issues, what are the most important things. And we didn't want to have, we already had the two boys. We didn't want to have one girl that was between them or the same age and one that was a baby. I mean, we had those parameters. And I have to uh, just mention that rainbowkids.com is fabulous for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you can put that down in your notes, um, but okay. it, it's a website where you, they walk you through all sorts of issues that you haven't thought about before. Would you take a child who had a cleft lip or um, would you take a child, you know, male, female countries? If you narrow down your parameters, like there's some countries we can't adopt from because we're too old. Some countries, they will only let you adopt from there if you're married. They won't take singles. So rainbowkids.com is a place where you can put in your information, and they help you think through all these sorts of issues. And I would I would say also, you know, people ask about, um, you know, what kind of advice would you tell people who are considering adoption? A couple of things I would say. One is most orphans, even babies, in some sense, come to you, they come to a new family with issues and it's it's, yeah. it's horrible they come to you with, with issues and challenges and whatnot and they may be incapable of loving you back the way that you idealize that you want your child to love you so but that doesn't mean you don't you you have to be able to go into it you know giving them everything you got and loving them no matter what mm-hmm. so I, I tell people really think about it if you're looking for somebody if you're looking for something to love you back that this is really not the avenue you know, get, get a puppy um the the other thing I would I would say is 
really settle before you even look at a single child settle upon what it is you're you're looking for i mean the adoption agencies are going to push you know they're trying to push the children on you that they're hard to move babies are easy they're going to want older children and i can we can go into a second how we chose what we chose but they're going to push older children which there's nothing wrong with that but there's some challenges they're going to push children who are handicapped children who are hiv positive children who are blind and they're going to make you feel. They may try and make you feel guilty for not doing that. Hey, these kids need need parents too, and you understand that. But you you know, if you go into this, you should never feel guilty about trying to adopt a child and give them a better life. You know, and saying, hey, this our family is not ready for this. This is not what we we're, It's not what's best for us. So, we adopted our first two boys, um, Isaiah and Daniel. They uh, they were five and six at the time, and. So we adopted them from Ethiopia, and that was a long, long process. And we, I say it was long, it was about 15 months from start to finish. The, um, they, we had to go visit them in Ethiopia uh, before we could uh, adopt them. That was a very difficult thing because you couldn't take them home. So you're going there, you're talking to them, you're meeting them over a period of week, you're trying to get them to trust you and accept you and whatnot. And then at the end of the week, when, they, when you, they're being told that these are your parents, then you have to go off and leave them. And you could just see the light dying in their eyes. You could just see them saying, oh, there's somebody else that's leaving me and letting me down. You know, and that was one of the things that was very, it was the hardest, I have to say that's probably the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life was to leave them because I could see it just, they did not understand. They, could, they, they, they had started to trust us, they started to love us, and then we'd gone away. Part of that, though, had to do with the immigration and naturalization process, because if you've met the kids prior to and you've interacted with them and then you go home and then you come back, then when you actually bring them home the second time, the minute they land on U.S. soil, they are U.S. citizens. Mm, Okay. And, you know, as hard as that was, it was worth it in that respect. We, We did not do that for our second adoption. And the immigration and naturalization process was just a bear, um, yeah, yeah. having you know had the kids overseas, but then we were in the United States, and how much time did they have to be on U.S. soil before they could immigrate, and all these different things, and I kept getting, depending on who I talked to, I got different answers from the same place. So it was just a pain. <laughs> it's yeah. a problem. So I deployed to Afghanistan. When I came back, we were able to go pick them up, and that was wonderful. They were I think they were overjoyed. They didn't, you know, I don't think they really in their hearts thought that we would come back to get them, but we, we did. And that, that was wonderful. And, uh, but it was interesting because people, a lot of people, what they don't, don't realize is, you know, you can't speak, you're going to take these two kids home to a different country, to a different whatnot, and you can't communicate with them and they can't communicate with you. I mean, they don't speak, they don't learn to speak English for about 90 days. Because our boys were five and six. Yeah, they were five and six. So it's, it's really... It's really challenging, and actually, what we did, what what came quickest is we had we had done some research and found out that your part of your brain that learns processing language or whatever, they can learn sign language so much faster than they can learn as a verbal language. So we bought the signing time videos, which is to teach deaf young deaf children how to how to do sign language. Hearing so, children how to do sign hearing language. children. I'm sorry, hearing children how to do sign language, and within a week, we were you know week ten days we were able to communicate them with sign language. Um, so they learned that much sooner than they actually learned English. So that was quite, quite helpful. It may surprise you to find out that 2008 and 2011 were actually a long time ago. 
Yeah. And uh, <laughs> kind of, I saw I saw one of the boys in the background there, uh, and uh, so I know where one of them is. What What are the rest of them doing now? Yeah, that was my that was my oldest. He just graduated from uh, from high school, and he's getting ready to go off to college here in the fall. Um, my second oldest is he's actually at my parents' house uh, doing dog sitting, and our uh, our two youngest. I think my my second youngest is downstairs playing on the Xbox, and my youngest is at a, a friend's house swimming in the pool. Does he play the new Call of Duty? No, we actually, believe it or not, we've the youngest kids, we've tried to say no video games. We're actually shooting what looks like a person. Oh, okay. Uh, so we're okay. that's smart. That only goes so far, but we're trying to we're, we're doing our best on losing battle to. And the boy that's the boy that's going off to college is obviously going to Louisville, right? Oh no! No, <laughs> <laughs> no. That's, that's, where, that's humor, I bet. Right? Where, where is he going then? He's going to University of Kentucky. Wow, my gosh, Wildcat, right? Yeah. Josh yeah. looks like he wants to ask something. No, I was just gonna say he's probably not going to Texas Tech, Luke. <laughs> well, I got three more chances, right? Three more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a good friend teaching there, so maybe we'll visit, and one of them will want to go. Excellent. There you go. Hey, so it's incredible what you've done. Um, you know, what was probably other, other than the, the communication thing, what has probably been like, you know, your biggest challenge in all of this after, you know, you got them back to the United States and, and trying to get them adjusted and settled. I don't know if it's the biggest challenge, but I know, I know adopting children from, from Africa, you frequently deal with uh, some health concerns. Uh, they have a lot of lingering, lingering sorts of, of issues. I mean, I remember we took our dog, our, our, we took our uh, oldest boys. We were at Shape in Belgium. We took them to the clinic there, and luckily there was a, a, a virologist there who had had experience in Africa, and we did a bunch of blood work and, and whatnot. And we came back the result trans like, well, do they have anything? They're like, yes. Like, what do they have? They're like, they have everything I've ever heard of in their bloodstream. <laughs> and it's like, oh my goodness. And they're like, no, that's a good thing. They, their immune system is going to be incredibly strong, but they've been exposed to every, I mean, you're talking about kids that are five and six and it multiple times had malaria already. Yeah, uh, one of them, uh-huh. they had an earache and had burst their eardrum because they couldn't get medication. And they had, like I said, there was an intestinal parasite and skin fungal parasites. issues on skin and nails. And yeah, our youngest son, before we could even get him out of Congo, was having seizures. And they thought they put him on phenobarbital because they thought he was. Um, yeah, nobody uses that anymore. Because uh, you get the leftovers. That's what Africa's yeah, getting. They thought he had epilepsy, and it turns out they did more. His uh, What had happened, he was having what's called a malnutrition seizures. It's like, you know, the, the, the synapses in your brain have a coating of fat, and you get your body fat down so low, it just starts eating that away, and you get a short in your brain. Good so Lord. he was having seizures because he was so malnourished, and they were starving to death before we could get there to get them. Wow. They just have a. Wow. It's funny because a few months before we went, there was a program where they brought in the peanut butter that was like packed with calories and vitamins, and I don't know the name of that program. But once they got it, um, he started having fewer seizures because he was getting this packed with everything peanut butter. And I remember one of our first trips where we took them out somewhere. They were sitting in the cart going to Sam's, and we went by the the pallet of peanut butter where it's stacked like, you know, two people tall. And they were just like, ah, they couldn't say anything, but they were like, ah, reaching for it. 
<laughs> yeah. But as far as uh, difficult stuff, a lot of things also they're they're educationally delayed. I guess to put it to put it mildly. I mean, you're talking about children who have had no education, and you think okay, five and six, they're just starting kindergarten. But you don't understand. I guess we don't we didn't realize how much education kids get even in their early age. I mean, you're talking about kids who didn't know they didn't know the names of colors even in their native language. They didn't mm. know. They didn't know numbers or how to count. They couldn't. I mean, you think about the little game where you have uh, shapes cut out and they put the square and the square and the star and the star and the circle. Mm-hmm. Could not do that. I mean, they'd struggled with that for years. Well, and puzzles are still challenging. Mm-hmm. It's just something that they did not do in their pre-K years, and it's difficult. Their minds don't make those connections and look to them how to put things together. Yeah. I spent some time in in the Horn of Africa, um, and I got to go to Addis. Um, and oh, yeah. it was actually, I tell you, you know, you always have that preconceived notion of, uh, of of what places are like. And I don't know if it was because all the Sally Struthers commercials when I was a kid, <laughs> but um, again, you know, I got to Addis and was it, it was gorgeous. You know, it yeah. was uh, super clean. It was just it was a great city, and the food was amazing. Um, yeah, but nice. yeah, they. You know, the Horn of Africa, they were, you know, you, you look at Somalia and the average adult level of education there is sixth grade. Um, yeah. You know, that's there. And, and that's some of their professionals. You know, that's some of their lawyers and, and stuff. You know, they have a sixth grade education. So I can only imagine what it's like in, you know, in Central Africa, especially somewhere like the Congo. And yet the, the our eldest got to go to like a little school, not just Sunday school, but some kind of little school at the church. And the Ethiopian language has, I can't remember if it's over 200 characters in the alphabet, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but he could say them all. So, you know, it's, it's, so I guess health and education were some of the, some of the concerns and, and, and just getting them to, getting them to, I mean, orphans, and we, we heard about this. A lot of times you have orphans you adopt, they you know, they're not sure how long you're going to be around. They've been abandoned by family. That's, that's, so they're not sure how they're – so at a certain point, they start acting out. I, and at a certain point, I think they're like – I don't want to put my thoughts in their head, but it's almost like, well, I'm starting to care for you, and you're just going to run on me anyway. We might as well do – we might as well make it happen now. And mm-hmm. I can remember with every one of my children, there was always a turning point where I said, hey, what you're doing is uh, is completely unacceptable. I don't approve of it. You can't do it. we got to stop it. But no matter what you do – you're not going anywhere. You're part of our family, and we love you. And so, just knock it off. What about cultural issues? Well, there, I don't know if it's culture, but there were some. We were just talking the other night about how I can remember we were. Uh, we took our boys to the. We had to go to the U.S. Embassy while we were there to uh, before we could leave to get the exit visa, and they had a little water cooler there in the waiting area, and the kids were. They got a cup of, of cold water, and they were just so amazed. It was like the most amazed. They never had. They never drank anything cold, and they were just amazed. It's shocked. Like running over to us with this cold cup, like taste it, taste it. You know, like okay. yeah, like yeah, great. Because everything that was new to them was also new to us, evidently. And uh, <laughs> I can remember leaving leaving the airport. Uh, I didn't think it was a big deal. One of our my oldest son went absolutely berserk. He'd never seen escalators before, and he's like, what kind of witchcraft is this? And he's dragging down the escalators. He, just, he was freaking out. Also, like, you, you food, right? You think, uh, you know, you don't expect your six- or seven-year-old to have a taste for coffee. But in Ethiopia, they might not have had food, but they could walk down. They picked coffee beans. They roasted coffee beans. 
they were drinking coffee, you know, in yeah, preschool. Yeah, from a young age. <laughs> and they would eat. Oh my gosh! Well, they're just they're four boys, but the and the spice, like our Ethiopian sons. It, you almost cannot get anything too hot for them. It's uh, it, one of them will make um, jalapeno sandwiches, and literally, it's bread and jalapenos stacked like with, half an inch thick with hot sauce. Yeah, with hot sauce. <laughs> Holy smokes! <laughs> but yeah. but they but you know and also we we kind of uh, and this just shows our level of lack of understanding. When we adopted from the Congo, we just kind of thought both – it's similar culture, similar experience, but oh, they were no. completely different. I mean, Ethiopia had a, a – there was – from a very young age in Ethiopia, you were expected to work to help the family. And so, you know, you look upon that as, oh, that's so horrible. But in a sense, also, um, our boys felt much more comfortable and felt like they were part of the family when we, we gave them responsibility and duties and chores. It almost, okay, I'm contributing to the family, I'm securing yeah. my role, and it seemed it seemed to really kind of kind of help them um, a lot. I might have lost the thread of your, your question there. I'm, I'm, uh, well, because no. the Ethiopians value education. They may not all get very much education, but they really value it. And in the Congo, the boys, our younger boys, were... Um, just in such a different situation, a much harder situation in terms of losing their mom, having been abandoned. Yeah, they had extremely, extremely difficult, extremely difficult. They they almost died and were left for dead. And uh, I hope I never somewhere out there they still have a they still have a, a father. But I hope I never have to meet that. Sorry, you know what? But um, yeah, very- so they learned they learned to stay out of the way as much as possible and not make waves. And that's one thing, like, well, all the boys, really, but there's a sense of when they get hurt, they're not used to somebody responding. Or caring. Mm. Or caring that they got hurt, that they were bleeding, that they scraped their knee. I mean, I got put on a list at uh, Fort Meade because my child didn't come to me and tell me that his elbow was hurting and it was broken. So he didn't go to the doctor to, like, you know, two days later when he took off his shirt. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what is this? And so I was on, like, the watch list while he was in Afghanistan because, you know, she doesn't bring her kids in on time when they get hurt. <laughs> hey, Ryan, this is uh, Roger. So, first of all, you know, God bless you guys for, you know, oh, taking you know, taking in four kids because I've got three. Uh, two of them I don't like a whole lot, and one is kind of <laughs> mediocre. So, all, you know, they can they can duke it out when they listen to this podcast if, uh, if they're listening to it at all. Um, you know, at the very beginning, you were talking about as far as the home studies and, uh, you know, outside of the social workers, but looking for different countries. Is, is there some type of overarching theme that you that you saw as far as, you know, what those foreign uh, countries are trying to prevent? I mean, does it go back to like, you know, human trafficking or, or are there certain rules that you start seeing that they're that's what they're trying to protect against? Well, I think a lot. Yes, I, I think at the heart of it, they are trying to prevent human trafficking, and it's a very noble goal. And I appreciate what they're what they're trying to do. I mean, I think they are trying. They are are all trying to do the right thing. Um, and but there's also a level of bureaucracy involved uh, in all of them, and some are worse than others. I mean, there's some. Uh, China is, and we've known people adopt from China. But that's a notoriously lengthy process. Um, and being in the and being in the intelligence field, I mean. Information you have to provide for your your home study is it makes your SF eighty six look like nothing uh, for your. I mean, the detail I can imagine that you, that you have to give to China or Russia or whoever 
is, is extremely detailed. And you know, the, the and there's there's downsides to to there's good and bad to wherever you're going to adopt from. That's just that's just something you kind of have to. To, to do research and what but I think you come back to that in your mind when you're so frustrated with the next level of paperwork or translations or whatever is that okay there we have to do this we have to do it again we have to do it at three different levels in triplicate but they're doing it that way because they are trying to protect the children you know trying to um, make sure that they that they're going good places right so that just uh Controls helps me control my frustration with all the paperwork. Um, I don't know why I just thought of this, but you know the health issues—they—they they don't stop. You know, every time you go to the doctor, I went with my oldest son two days ago, a new doctor, and it's like family background, none. We have no, no history, no any, and they just have to put that down on anything. And one of the educators told me when I was doing uh, homeschooling, actually. He said, um, I said, at what point can I stop writing down on their paperwork that they didn't speak English until they were five and six? And he said, never. <laughs> put it on their college applications. Put it on their grad school. It makes a difference forever. Sure. And I'm like, wow. And that was another issue, too, that we, we discovered, too. In many cases, I mean, maybe there's other options, but it's really hard to do this without homeschooling at least the first year because... The children don't speak. If you're adopting older children. If you're adopting older yeah. children, yeah, because they don't speak English and won't for a while. And also, most schools, they won't let you enroll your kid until they've had like a year's or worth of immunizations. Mm-hmm. And of course, they come with nothing. No, uh, two shots maybe that were required. But yeah, but not yet. But also, they haven't been with you and bonded with you as a baby. You know, depending on right, growing right. up with you, so they really recommend if if one parent or even if a single parent could take the time off, spend as much time as you can at home with your child um, before you you know take them to school somewhere else, have them with somebody else. Right, and I know you mentioned that that one of your children, uh, you know, the the biological father is still alive. And, and maybe it helps because just, you know, the infrastructure being what it is uh, over in Africa. But have you had, uh, you know, whether it be from, you know, your kids themselves, you know, a little curiosity. Do I have aunts and uncles that are alive or anybody who's tried to reach back out? Or, you know, I can imagine at this point, you know, you start seeing all the 23andMe commercials and this and that. You know, there's some natural curiosity there. So has that come up? And, and if it has, you know, have you handled it with, with your kids? It has come up actually with our oldest son. Our oldest son has been intensely interested in trying to find his grandparents. Of course, they raised him when his parents died. He's very, very interested. One of the issues, though, is a lot. Most of the adoption agencies, when the parents or the family members or whatnot give the child up, they make them sign saying they will not try to make contact because they've had bad experiences in the past where the they give the child up and then they pressure the child to send money back to support them because they think that's what it's about. Because I have a Nigerian uncle who keeps trying to, you know, right. get me to send some money. Back, you know. <laughs> yeah, similar. Exactly. So it's very, very hard. And we've tried in the last um, the last few, maybe the last 12 months, last year, to try really try and find, get contact with our oldest son's um, family. And it's been very, very hard. I mean, to the point where he, he knows he had a younger brother that was adopted as a baby to Canada, but we can't find or where it's at or anything. It's just very, very, very hard. Uh, Now, his his youngest brother from Ethiopia has zero interest 
in, you know, the, he, he has a completely different attitude. And the eldest wanted to practice as we were homeschooling. I had some DV, uh, some DVDs or curriculum to help him keep his language where our second son was just like, no, he, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> Unless it was food, he didn't want to. He, he never wanted to go to Africa. He never nothing. So it may surprise some of the canteeners out there. I guess you know maybe it won't. The the observant canteener out there can tell from Ryan and Kristen's accent that they're from inner city Detroit. But <laughs> what what yeah eight mile. <laughs> no, I think uh, they're they're. I don't know what would you call yourself a a, a Kentuckian or what? Just a yeah Kentuckian Southern. Well, Here's the thing. They're both as white as uh, this piece of paper in front of me. And and uh, I'm sure people could probably divine that uh, any kid from the Congo and Ethiopia is probably going to have a little bit of darker complexion. Now, I haven't lived in Belgium, the Balkans, all over the place. You know, you, you get, you know, there's there's a certain look you get. So, you know, the question I wanted to ask, and Ryan, you and I have talked about it. We can share it with everyone else. Have you... You know, did you experience any discrimination, uh, any sideways looks? Uh, did it, does it make the kids feel uncomfortable? What, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I would say not as much as we were anticipating. People notice. They definitely notice. They definitely notice. But the other thing is, Kristen went to a good workshop ahead of time, and they, and they, they gave some, some tools, I guess, to dealing with that because it really – there's going to be you're going to get curiosity because they look at you as a family and your vibration when it doesn't fit. So they're, they're in their mind they're trying to figure what is, what is this? How do they fit in together? Um, and it really helps being part of the military community too because there's a lot of mixed families in the military community. It's not uncommon. It's much more common really I think than than civilian world in, in some cases. Um, but and we've tried to train. You know I we've. We've read a lot before this, and we and we read have the dangers of sensitizing kids to to racism early. So, you know, I've I've just tried to train my kids. You know, if if somebody's treating you poorly, nine times out of ten, it's just because they're a jerk. It's not because they're a racist. Um, you know, that's just that's just who they or are. Both, or they're both. Or they're both. Assume, <laughs> don't assume that because they they're probably a jerk to everyone. Um, they're, they're equally yeah jerk, but. But you know we did, and it's funny because I was worried about I was worried about that uh, coming home to Kentucky because we have some family members that are not what you would call all inclusive. We were kind of I mean, we were kind of worried uh, some of the things they would say, but it, it's it's funny because those family members were some of the most accepting and loving uh, of our children. Our you know that's an exaggeration. Well. <laughs> they, they were accepting compared to what we were expecting. They were, were so expecting. accepting. They were accepting. Now they didn't necessarily change their ways, but they, they, you know, in in their mind, it's like, well, they're different, right? Our kids are the exception. Yeah, mm. which it's yeah. you know, it's it's not the it's it's not the the hundred percent goal, but you know, it's it's part of the way there. Um, the other, you know, and, and so. People have mostly been polite and courteous and whatnot. Now there there were some. You get a lot more open curiosity, I think, among the African American community. Yeah, I remember going um, because we could. We were homeschooling, and I took the kids. Gosh, I guess it was to Jersey, I can, Atlantic City. Anyway, um, in the middle of winter, nobody else was there. We're homeschooling in this high rise. But when we walked on the boardwalk, very few people were around. And I'm walking down the boardwalk, holding hands with one of the younger boys. 
and an African-American gentleman several years older uh, passed us and then turned and started following us. Like, what is this white woman doing with this black <laughs> child? And and the older boys had run on, and one of them ran back and was like, hey, mom, mom, you got to come see this, whatever. And then he was like, oh, okay, and he... He stopped following us. Same thing even on post uh, when we brought home the big guys. You know, I'm going to let him climb that tree because, hello, what's he been doing? I mean, and it was an African-American lady that was like, is that your baby? And I'm like, yes, he is. And she's like, okay. So they're watching out for them, you know, and having having people in the African-American community turn around and you're in line at, you know, whatever fast food place and say, yeah. Is, is this your child? And I'm like, yes, this mm. is my son. In some cases, she even had the child just kind of just ignore Kristen and talk directly to and say, son, are you okay? Are you okay with this? <laughs> wow. Do you need help? Or are you fine? That That's didn't cool. happen very often, but just I, I took the boys to an all gospel uh, service. And when it was time to go around and greet people and that kind of thing, you know, you think, oh, it's, it's Christians. We're all here together. And yet they... Uh, most of the people there greeted my children and didn't speak to me. Hmm. So that was, and that was on post. I mean, that was in the wow. military community. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, it was, I mean, it seems like, uh, I, I don't, it, it doesn't fall into the category. You asked about discrimination. It doesn't really fall into discrimination. It just seems like the African-American community was a little more outgoing and being automatically protective of yeah. our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they would, they would jump in and they were, um, they were, you know, they just kind of assumed, it seemed to be assumed a little bit of an automatic protective role, even though they didn't know them. Uh, And so, but I would say all in all, uh, you know, we, we thought we were kind of prepared for some form of, you know, discrimination or whatnot. We were braced for it. We were braced for it. And it really didn't materialize (laughs) uh, like we thought. Uh, and we were braced for it moving back to, you know, we're out of the military community, we're living in rural Kentucky, and we were braced for it here. And although I know there's, you know, there's some issues here, but most of the uh, issues that our boys have come to us with have been from... Um, have been from kids who are who are mixed and are lighter skinned, yeah, making fun of our true. very dark skinned boys. Yeah, that's been an issue. Now, I was going to kind of ask on that, and you touched on a little bit of it. So I, I did a tour in Haiti, and I had some friends that, that were, uh, you know, native-born Haitians and, and some that were from Africa. And kind of wanted to see, and maybe your your sons are just, they're, they're not old enough yet, but as far as any interactions you've seen between black persons that are born in America versus, you know, from somewhere else, whether it be Haiti, you know, Africa, or anything like that. Have you seen any discrepancy as far as how they're treated? Because I know some friend, close friends I had in Haiti that, you know, black Americans, you're not black. Like, nope, you're not from Haiti. You're not from Africa. It's like, we don't consider you black. You might as well be white. Um, and again, I know your kids might be a little young for that, but I mean, have you seen any, maybe uh, how the old, you know, elderly either uh, look at them and say, okay, well, you know, same, same skin color, we're good or no, you're not black American or have you noticed any of that? At this point, most most people find it hard to believe that our kids were actually born in Africa. They just they don't they, they find it hard to believe. <laughs> um, they uh, now I, I I do remember a conversation. Um, I don't remember the specifics, but the gist of it I had with it, and it was a very collegial you know conversation with an African American, and it was to the almost the attitude of you know this you, you're what what kind of qualifies you to raise 
the, your children in the African American culture. You know, you don't understand. And I, and I had to kind of say, well, that's not really their culture. You know, they have their own culture, and you know, they, it's an Ethiopian culture. They, they, they can, they can choose, kind of pick and choose. I understand living in America as, as a, as a black man. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna have some of that. It is also part of your culture. But there's, there's, anyway, there was. There was a little bit of that conversation. We didn't fit into any particular mold, and I think that confused some people. And it even kind of, you know, it was, it was difficult for us to figure out at first. And we just had to settle, okay, we're going to do what's best for what we feel is best for our children. And we try and tell our children, you know, the fact that you're black is not even uh, of the top ten most important things about you. It doesn't make <laughs> right. the top ten. Uh, that's good. You know, that's just that's not. It's, it's it's on the same level as you know. You color your hair or the type of fingernails you have or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, again, this was when we moved here, the boys, we'd already talked to the athletic department, and so they started football practice before school started. So they already knew people. And so for the high schoolers, uh, one of the boys was telling us that he um, yeah, he showed up when it was time for school, and he, he showed up and he went to lunch that there was actually like a table of African-Americans and a table of, I guess, white football players or something. I, I don't remember exactly, but he said that they were like, hey, you need to sit over here with us. And this other table's like, no, you need to come sit with us. And he's sitting there with his tray looking at both of them. And he's like, whatever. He went and sat at the table. He went and sat with a table to nothing but girls. There we go. Nice. There we go. He's an American. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, the, the news has been <clears throat> on, on, on one topic for, you know, for, for a while now, what are you guys kind of, you know, telling the kids, um, what do you, what are you telling them about what's going on? And, you know, cause I mean, that's impacting, you know, even my, you know, I, I have three girls, um, and I'm the, I'm the only boy in the house. So, you know, uh, and that's yeah. questionable, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even, even for, you know, even for the girls, like trying to explain to them what's going on, you know, how, what message are you, are, are you providing your sons and kind of, you know, how are you framing that for them? Cause that's gonna, you know, this, this is obviously something they will remember for, for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this the other night I mean, and it comes down, I mean, um, I mean, it, it is a tragedy that, that, George Floyd died, and because he didn't have to die. I mean, I, I don't think he had to die because he was murdered. Yeah, and it was it was a horrible, horrible thing. And that that police officer had many complaints. But you know, I try and tell you know, and, and two of our sons want to be police officers, and I try to tell them it's a noble profession. They are there to protect us. Most of most of the military are there, and they care, and they they do immensely more than they're ever compensated for. And I have I have nothing but respect for them. And I tell them, you know, there's protesting is a right. It is a right that you have to peacefully protest. Uh, but we endanger other people when you break the law. That is totally unacceptable. I guess I have a lot of, um, I don't want to say fears, but just the idea that that my son could jog through a neighborhood and get shot. I mean, that's just so, so unreal to me. And, yeah. and to think that I'm thinking, oh, yay, I'm glad that our child likes to go. One of them likes to take walks with us. So people in our neighborhood know who he is. But I shouldn't even have to think that way. Yeah. And, and one, it, it kind of, we've talked, we've thought about this. I mean, 
our sons are very funny, very gregarious, very outgoing, very whatever. Oh, but but yes, but you know, it, it it makes me sad that people somebody might look at them and be scared. Um, and they've done studies where you take African American children. Typically, if you look at them and, and somebody has to guess their age, typically they're what three to four. They guess they're three to four years older than they really are. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so our our child that just turned thirteen, I love it. He's the tallest one. He's already six foot. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but people look at our eighteen year old and think he's you know twenty one or twenty two. I mean, it's just. Then then they're expecting them to act like they're expecting a fourteen year old to act like an older, more mature person should, instead of like the kid that they are. But I've tried, you know, we've we've tried to get instill them with respect for authority, that you treat people somebody with respect, and I, I, part of part of it comes from me, my personal experience working in an intel field. You know, if you're in a bad spot, first first goal is to get off the X. You know, do whatever it takes to get out of that situation. And typically that means being polite, being respectful, being understanding, not argumentative, not not presenting any type of threat. Because, the, you know, and I try to tell them, hey, if, if, you've, if you're in a bad situation, the worst thing to get to you is not being arrested. You know, just, you know, if the, if the, if the cops insist on arresting you, just let them arrest. You know, we'll, what you don't want to do is give them an excuse for it to get physical. Although I know that there, there are a lot of African Americans who think if you get arrested and they take you off in that car, you might end up dead. You might end up. I mean, there's. Yeah, there's some fear there, and and, and I I don't I haven't done research to know if that's that's a real valid concern or not. But I mean, as far as our children, you know, we just try and tell them, hey, just be polite, be be respectful, be don't mouth because in some cases there comes a point. Or the police officer has to make a decision, yes or no. Don't make it an easy decision for them. Uh, or if you're going to make it an easy decision, make it easy for them to let you go. Uh, because, you know, I've known a lot of police officers, and most of them, you know, most of them would rather not arrest you if they if they didn't have to. They would rather not have the headache of taking you in. You know, if, if your attitude is, hey, officer, I'm really sorry, I, I apologize, I shouldn't have done that, you know, would you, can you cut me a break? But we're usually thinking in terms of speeding tickets or you right. ran a stop sign, you know. We're not thinking in terms of somebody saw something four blocks over and now you're picking up my kid because you think he's the right. one that did it. And I fully understand. Sure. I fully sure. understand that I'm coming at this from my personal background experience. And I have I have black friends who have explained to me that I, it's going to be very difficult for me to understand. And I, I, I fully accept that. I can't totally understand some of the things because I know there are, you know, there are African-American people who have never broken the law in their life, but every time they see a police officer, their heart, they're, they're, they get a sinking feel in the pit of their stomach. You know, they they feel fear just by seeing that, and and I, that makes me sad. I hate that because I hate that it's like that, and I don't want that for my children if I can help it. I like to think there's a lot of hope too, that that when one of our boys went to school and somebody in their class had the Confederate flag on their backpack. You know that it was it was other students in the classroom that were like, "Dude, you shouldn't have that in here. Turn it around, whatever." I mean, our son was like, "What?" He didn't even notice, but other people were taking up for him. You know, and I I felt good about that. I feel like as much as we talk about you know 
yeah. progress that there is some, there really is. And that's in a rural Kentucky high school where everybody who drives a big truck is like the end thing. But we've also tried to desensitize a lot of them to that, to that regard. I mean, an hour and a half from here is the Jefferson Davis Memorial. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, he was the president of the Confederacy. And we took him there, and there's Confederate flags everywhere and a big tall tower and whatever. We walked through and talked about the history and explained it and whatnot. And it's, I didn't want to be threatened by that either. You know, that that's part of the past. And that's, and you don't want to, you don't want to erase the past. I mean, I, I'm a student of history. And, and, you know, you can, you need to be able to look at your history objectively and learn from it. And if you erase it because it, it hurts to think about it, that's, I think that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know? I'll, I'll tell you something that is afraid of, of your kids right now. Malaria three times, intestinal parasites, Ebola, freaking leprosy going all over Africa. I'm telling you, that COVID, that coronavirus probably got in their body, and their immune system said, you came to the wrong neighborhood, pal. i can tell you that right now. Kicked it to Most the curb. <laughs> I thought you were going to say fey owners. <laughs> yeah, that too. I'll tell you uh, – Real quick, we want to cover this before we let you guys go. Um, I, I said that Ryan is a mentor of mine. I, uh, I have an alter ego that's written a few books, and I would have never done it if it hadn't been for for Ryan and his wife. Actually, they're both uh, writers, and you may you loyal canteeners may remember I, I plugged uh, Ryan King's books, and Kristen also has books out there on Amazon. But uh, just real quick. Uh, Ryan, Kristen, if you guys could just give me a quick rundown on what your I'm going to call it a career. Uh, because it's young, it is young, right. and uh, it, I think that Ryan and I have talked, and it you know it keeps going. Uh, after maybe the kids get out of the house, it could be a, a decent supplemental income with both of you doing it. So, uh, give me a, give me a little rundown of that. Well, I started. I've always been interested in, in writing. Uh, I think it really started, and I, I've always been guys who kind of a person who kind of thought about what if, you know, I, and. So I guess it started for me really seriously writing. It was the January of 2010 when Fort Meade had snowmageddon. We had like almost 10 feet of snow, and you know the snow plows came down the road, but all they just piled up into higher. So you you were stuck in your house and couldn't get out, and it, it just felt like you were isolated. It kind of gave kind of an end of the world feel to it, and that got me thinking about you know what if we were me and my family were really in an end of the world situation. I would want to get home to my family in Kentucky, and how would that happen? And that led to the first book I wrote, which is called Glimmer of Hope, which is a post-apocalyptic book that starts in Fort Meade and is set in, and uh, it goes to Kentucky, which is free on Amazon, by the way, um, and which is the first book in a four-book series. Uh, but, you know, I, I also want to, and I'll get turned over to Kristen here in a minute, because she does a lot of publishing, too, for, for many, several other writers. But I also want, I tell people, anybody who's interested in writing, this is the best time in the world to do it because it's so easy to do, to write and publish and put things out there. And and a lot of people want to know, well, how successful are you? Well, we're moderately successful. But I tell people also, you know, it's it's a cheaper hobby than golf. Um, It's And and here's the other thing people, I, I hear from people, for whatever reason, writing is an art form that is is often considered a waste of time if you don't make money off of it. You don't get that same level from people who are artists or people who are musicians or people who do things just to, to, to let off steam or to, to fulfill their life. And, you know, if you, if you're on the golf course and see somebody playing golf, you don't, you know, you don't scream at them, you know, 
you'll never make the PGA. Give it up. You know, <laughs> but that, that almost is kind of the attitude, it seems like, a lot of times with writers. Um, I would say if you – and I think everybody has a story. I really do think everybody has a story that's worth hearing about. And there's and there's two things. You know, the story – everybody has a story, and the story is unique. The story is interesting. Now, telling the story is where the work comes in, and that that's where it gets hard. And Luke and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, but that's kind of – we think, Kristen. What was the question? Writing. Writing. <laughs> <laughs> She's very focused. Laser-like focused. <laughs> you went over so much. I'm sorry. Well, she she actually – I'm going to go real quick. Just kind of – I'm going to give you a rolling intro. Oh, so yay. prepare yourself. <laughs> well, he's a pro, people. He's a pro. <laughs> yeah. So Kristen, um, she – she actually wrote a couple books too, but what her pa- and she's wrote some stories. Her passion has been finding people who have stories and encouraging them to, to write and tell their stories. And and we've had people come to us and want us to publish their books, which we have done a little bit. But we we're actually more inclined to to put people in a position where they can publish their own books. Now we ha- she has published some people some books, mostly older uh, who older writers who would never probably be able to do the technology. They're not comfortable with the technology. Yeah, it drives me crazy to think that someone has written a book and it's just sitting in a closet somewhere and no one will ever read it. Yeah. Like the idea that they've finished something, they've gone through that entire process and it's just sitting there. Um, so tell, her, tell them the story about Irene. That's kind of probably a good... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was actually doing a, a young writers group. Uh, it was at our church and one of the students said, hey, my my friend's, my grandma's friend wrote a book. Would you look at it? And I was like, well, we don't really publish for other people. And she said, well, you know, but I'll look at it. I'll look at it. So then she brings me this copy of a typed manuscript. So you kind of know how much uh, technology is there. And I start reading it. And Ryan's the history buff, not me. But I'm reading this story of this girl who her dad is, like, teaching these Russian uh, royalty people who have fled from Russia how to incorporate and speak German and all these things. It's a true story set right before war. Yeah, II. it's her memoirs. It's her story of growing up. She was born in the same year as Anne Frank. But you get, I said, it's a treasure. It's just a historical treasure. And it's not, she hasn't writ it, written it to pull your emotional strings or anything. But just starting with, I don't know, when she was six years old and going up through World War II, then she was behind the Iron Curtain, how she dressed as a boy for three years to support her family as a teenager and then became a nurse and escaped the Iron Curtain in 1953. And it's just, you know, it's a treasure and it's a privilege to be able to put that out there for people. When I, you know, when I'm writing, it's it's more fictional, romantic <laughs> type things. <laughs> My daughter, uh, my daughter read that book, Kristen. She she did enjoy it, and it was right after she had read all the Twilight stuff. Oh yeah, and she liked the, she liked the spin you put on it. Uh, Kane's Coven, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Kane's Coven is the first one. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I, I I've got a project going um, with AJ Todd and some Yahoo named Bucky Calhoun or some nonsense like that, and uh, <laughs> it's a collection of. Uh, we decided, Bucky and I decided that, uh, you know, all the stories that are being told right now about the last 20 years of, of, of war and conflict are the ones that are getting the most press are from, you know, SF guys, Rangers, SEALs and stuff like that. And that's all good. Yeah. But, you know, the, the normal people have stories, too. And I, I really think, you know, it'll 
I don't want that to be lost to history. You know, even, you know, uh, Cook, you know, what, what was it like for them in Afghanistan? What was it like for them in Iraq, the truck driver? I mean, there's some really good stories out there. So we're going to put that, Bucky and I are going to put that out on uh, July 4th. And uh, half the proceeds to, uh, for that book are going to go to the All Secure Foundation. Bucky Calhoun is Josh, everyone. But uh, <laughs> half <laughs> you tell about the time you beat the Swedes? Okay, so that that leads me into the next next topic, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, This is just the first volume. It's uh, it's got I don't know 35 stories or so. Uh, They're all short stories. They're really easy to read. Some are entertaining. Some are heartbreaking. Uh, And it's it's dedicated to veterans that have fought are currently fighting uh, in the past 20 years, and also to you know we really want to highlight suicide prevention among veterans. And, uh, like I said, half the proceeds will go to, uh, the all secure foundation. The other half will go toward promoting the book and getting the next one out, which is volume two. Now I know Ryan, that you had told me that you're kind of taking a hiatus, uh, from writing for a little while to focus on, on other things in your life, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, we got, we already have this crusty old nasty Sergeant major that's on the spot on the spot to uh, contribute three or four stories. Uh, but I want to put you on a spot and, and, and try to get you to uh, commit to maybe putting two or three in the in volume two that may be out around Christmas. Uh, what do you think? I can't say no to this story. Okay, yet. well there you go. You have there you have it, people. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got our big name, Bucky. We got Ryan King on board. The sales are going to go through. Can I, tell, right, I'm gonna hold. Can I tell stories about Luke Jones? Absolutely. And we'd like to transition uh, eventually to uh, you know. Vietnam vets, uh, it's getting harder and harder to find World War II vets that are still alive. Uh, Korean War, you know, even, you know, Grenada, because, you know, we don't want these to be lost to history. And like you said, it's so easy now to, to get the ISBN, even to get the Library of Congress number. And that's immortal. You know, you put something out there that nobody can take that away. So we think it's important uh, to tell those stories. So that that's our plug, and we're gonna we're gonna hit that we're gonna hit that again more and more until July fourth, and then I'm gonna be hitting you up, Ryan. They don't have to, you know, maybe easy. You can knock those out in two hours. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna, one more plug for one more plug for Ryan, and then I'm um, close it out and uh, say goodbye to Ryan and Kristen. Ryan wrote a, a short story called Redneck Reunion. It's on Kindle uh, on Amazon. I would highly recommend reading that story. That's one of the funniest things I've ever read. Uh, all his other books are great too. Uh, I think I've read all of them, I think. And uh, his next project when he gets back to writing is kind of a science fiction thing and it's a really cool twist. So check him out on amazon.com. Check Kristen out on amazon.com. They, they publish through Three Kings Publishing. Ryan Kristen really is a really great talking to you guys. It was a nice change of pace to hear about that. I, my wife and I have considered adoption. We're still considering it. And I know a lot of other people are out there too. So if we get any feedback, uh, I'll, I'll, and they have questions, we, we might send them your way as you offered. And, um, you know, you answer those questions because, you know, you changed, you made a positive change in those boys' lives and good Christian people, good patriots. And, uh, we just thank the world of you. So thank you for coming on. Uh, we might do a follow-up in a, uh, later on, talk about writing a little bit more. And uh, appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Okay. And that about does it for episode 18 of Culper's Canteen Cup. Before we close out, Josh, you got anything? 
Yeah, so my kids said that they're, they're going to set the house on fire if I don't plug their their TikTok channel. So if you are on TikTok along with the Ministry of uh, State Security uh, for China, you go check out the TikTok channel, Those Vibes Though. All right, so that's Those Vibes and Though, T-H-O. Why? Because they're teenagers. That's why. So go check that uh, TikTok channel out for me so, uh, so I can be the, the best dad in the world. And mom, if you don't know what TikTok is, uh, give me a call. I'll hook you up on that so you can go like that page. And with that, I think that's just about does it for episode 18 of Culper's Canteen Cup. We hope you all enjoyed that. Don't forget to visit uh, carltonzeus.com and Ginger Inferno Flags on Facebook and Instagram. Until our next episode where we're going to burn your face off, stay frosty, keep canteen cups full.